Alexa, lower the thermostat to 63 degrees. Oh my God. Are you joking me with this? Did you prepare that as a bit? No, I didn't. <laughs> the heat's set to 63. Okay. <laughs> Could you ask Alexa what her opinion about Sidney Lumet's 1976 film Network is? You know, I haven't asked. She's been in the room the couple of times I've been able to screen it over the last week or so, but she hasn't she hasn't broken in with any commentary either. Okay. Mm-hmm. Alexa, do you like the movie Network? I don't have an opinion on that. See. <laughs> wow, way to straddle the fence, Alexa. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, she doesn't have an opinion on that. Okay, well, let me formally introduce you. Well, you are Richard Brown. That's right. Writer, raconteur, media maven. Sure. Any other descriptives I should, a uh, tennis professional? Not a tennis professional, just a, uh, just a tennis lover and lover of all things involving rackets. Also, dedicated figure skating enthusiast. Sure. I was going to say back when we could freely travel the country. Yeah. You and your partner, Dr. C, would go all over the world to watch figure skating. That's what we do. And tennis. And tennis, that's right. Yeah. And now we have none of that. Now we have nothing except... They could do figure skating. Why? Huh? I mean, figure skating is by definition a socially isolated sport. You would think so, but they have to sell tickets. Well, I mean, could they put on an exhibition for us in an empty ice arena? Just uh, for- I, mean, I suppose you could do that with any of these sports. Well, except for the contact ones. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you, Richard... I was thinking about this the last couple of days. I really owe a lot of my entertainment career to you, directly and indirectly. Okay. <laughs> You're waiting to hear where that goes or? Oh, sure. I'd like to know, well, I'd like to know what's direct and what's indirect. Okay. So directly, we went to college together a long time ago. Hampshire College. Hampshire College, 1988. Did we meet in our first year at Hampshire College? I believe mm. so. No, not really till third second second year. Okay. You had the absolute perfect kind of media childhood to lead you to Hampshire College and beyond. And I think that we always shared that and bonded over that and particularly bonded over maybe some of the more obscure things, some of the things maybe left of the dial, you might say. But in particular, you were responsible for really slight pivot that I made very early on when I started working in television to produce and direct with Henry Astor, our fellow Hampshire graduate, the Bobby Darren documentary that we did for PBS back in God knows what, 1998, maybe, yeah, maybe 1998. That was your, your idea. That was your thing. Even going back to college, almost 10 years before we ended up making the film that you hipped me and Henry to Bobby Darren, number one, and told us about his amazing and fascinating life, number two, and kind of planted that seed, which many years later when I think you had already been kind of working in the media in New York, you were working in radio, right, uh, initially, weren't you? W-O-R, were you a W-O-R guy? I was a W-O-R and I was at CNN at the same time. That's right, that's right. Were you at CNN radio side or were you on the TV side? CNN financial news TV. Wow. 
That's right. <laughs> Didn't you work like the 4 a.m. shift or something at WOR? No, I had to work yeah, early mornings and Saturdays were usually my, right. uh, my gigs there. Yeah. Right. Well, anyway, I had worked in cable news, ironically enough, for what we're talking about today, which is part of the grounding for my love and appreciation for this film. And hadn't found it to my tastes and was kind of looking for something else to do. And I don't even know how the idea came back into being, whether it was Henry or you or me, but somehow that Bobby Darren idea came back into being and, and we pursued it. And Henry and I ultimately had a ridiculously easy path to getting that project off the ground. And really from there, even though we rested on our laurels and just waited for all the great opportunities to come rolling in afterwards, which meant we didn't work for probably two years after finishing the film. Ultimately, it was a really important part of the whole process and trajectory, which would not have happened really without you. So a belated thank you for that, Richard. Oh, well, it's interesting because you continue to start your own company and make a great career for yourself in media. Mm -hmm. And uh, I couldn't be further removed from it now. Lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so first let me say, this is our first Zoom recorded episode of Full Cast and Crew podcast. The first episode recorded in the new COVID-19 shelter at home, stay in place, grow crazy beard, don't get a haircut. Uh, we're all living in our homes without venturing outside world that we now live in, which is so perfect for the movie that we're here to discuss, if you think about it. Why do you think it's perfect for the movie we have to, we're going to discuss? Well, when I was watching it the other night, there was, I mean, of course, with any Patty Chayefsky penned thing, you're going to have so much stuff that rings true in any era that you're watching the film in. But particularly this movie with its vision of a dystopian United States run by entertainment oligarchs and the dumbing down of uh, television and news, particularly, I just found so many, so many similarities to what we're living through right now. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller. And all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. When did you first encounter this movie? Okay. Well, I watched Network at first when I was in high school. I had uh, in... Well, junior high, uh, I made friends with this, uh, this uh, guy, Ian, who's still a good friend of mine to this day. And he was a real film nerd and sort of inculcated me into all of this film directors that I knew nothing about. He, you know, he'd bring me over his house and he, we would watch Kubrick and Scorsese and Robert Altman and Sidney Lumet. And, uh, you know, he was very into sort of the nerdhood of these um these uh, American filmmakers, particularly of this era, this kind of neo-realist, you know, 70s, sometimes refer I refer to this as the second golden age of, uh, of Hollywood movies. When Ian brought me to watch this movie, Network, it was my first real experience with what I would call 
I want to say adult movies. <laughs> adult, <laughs> not, not those yeah. kinds of movies. Yeah. Not yet. Adult anyway. theme movies. Like I was, a, you know, I was, a, I, you know, obviously as a kid growing up, I was a fan of all kinds of movies and, and I'd seen, certainly seen rated R movies and, and, and movies with, with heavy themes. But I can remember seeing this movie network and thinking for the first time that, that there was something out there in this type of media that was similar to the way that I had been taught to view orchestral music or, uh, or fine art up until that point. I had never taken movies as something that, would, that one would consider as a serious form of art. Mm-hmm. And here was this movie network, which I had never even heard of until that point, which so much addressed all of my interests as a kid. Mm-hmm. And they were all sort of like, well organized into this amazing story and this this amazing both deep and sarcastic story mm-hmm. and it was in a way it was a lot of my sort of fantasies come true about uh what life was like inside of network tv i've been telling you people since i took this job six months ago that i want angry shows i don't want conventional programming on this network i want counterculture i want anti-establishment don't want to play butch boss with people. But when I took over this department, it had the worst programming record in television history. This network hasn't one show in the top 20. This network is an industry joke. And we better start putting together one winner for next September. I want a show developed based on the activities of a terrorist group. Joseph Stalin and his merry band of Bolsheviks. I want ideas from you people. That is what you're paid for. And and as I was saying, it was also my first real exposure to what I would call movies with with a with a dark adult theme. Sure, the world of adults guessed at, hinted upon, but never really known at that point as a teenager growing up. Yeah, and from that point, you know, from that point forward, we would we would watch all kinds of avant-garde things and mm-hmm. and you know stuff that was highly regarded from a more artistic point of view. And, you know, long before I ever knew anything about auteur theory or maison-son or anything like that, you know, this, this, this was, uh, network was, was kind of a gateway drug for me. So do you think of this as a Patty Chayefsky film or do you think of it as a Sidney Lumet picture? Well, I think this is a really interesting example, a rare example of a movie that sort of stands on the shoulders of its screenwriter. I mean, you, you can go back if you're really, if you're into film or even maybe only sort of mildly into the movie business. I mean, there are some, maybe some household names around screenwriters. A lot of people might know Aaron Sorkin or Paul Schrader or Charlie Kaufman, people like that. But I'm really hard pressed to think of another movie that where the screenwriter of all the people involved in the making of a film really stands out almost like an auteur does in, you know, classic film theory. Mm-hmm. You know, Sidney Lumet is a much uh, celebrated film director. We could talk about all the, you know, all the sort of the great Sidney Lumet movies in Network. But this is Chayefsky's film. He sat in on, on everything, every shot that was made. He, uh, he was sitting basically underneath the camera and sending note back, notes back to Sidney Lumet. And it's also interesting that the, that the two of them had kind of a, you know, a very sort of compatible marriage, which was that 
um, you would think most film directors would really uh, balk at, um, you know, having a screenwriter come in and be, you know, and, uh, and having authority over the way the, the filmmaking was being conducted. But Sidney Lumet, frankly, was fine with it, you know? What one of the fascinating things about Patty is that he writes a character who, whose protest becomes a byword today. I mean, it's in the language. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. What I love is that Howard Beale does absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> There's no action. And one of the brilliances of, in the writing of that movie was that Patty would never be sentimental enough to make a difference. He has an audience out there which shouts along with the announcer, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And that that becomes as stupid and duplicitous as anything else. And Howard is yelling at them, you're not serial, you're not fake, we're the ones who are fake. And they sit there and he goes into a fit and falls on the ground and they cheer. He felt that uh, Patty Chayefsky, for all of his uh, personality quirks, actually, you know, was a great contribution to the making of this film on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, it's so interesting. I think both of them having roots in theater, uh, Lumet initially, I think Chayefsky kind of started more in uh, early television, then bounced to theater, then bounced back to television, then bounced to movies, then briefly back to theater, then maybe back to television. He had a very ping pong kind of career, which I got most of the way through David Itzkoff's brilliant book about the making of network called Mad as Hell, which gets a lot into the backstory of both of these guys. Chayefsky's dedication to his vision was both such a blessing and a curse for him personally and professionally. You know, he was so committed to his thing that it doesn't sound like really, maybe except for network, he had much pleasure out of the process of bringing these things to life. Uh, no, and he was always perennial. The reason why he, why he jumped between these mediums is because he was always perennial, perennially mad about the way he was being treated or the mm -hmm. way the industry around the medium mm -hmm. conducted itself. The reason he got out of TV is because he hated the way, you know, he got, he hated the way that TV worked. And then over 10 years later, he got out of theater because he hated the way that worked. And like you said, he kept going from kind of one thing to the next. Um, and it's interesting that really he, he, you know, network was his kind of his uh, magnum opus, if you will. Mm. Um, and it was the one project where maybe he had more control uh, over all of the content than he did in anything else. Um, it was a similar thing when making the when he made the movie Hospital um, mm -hmm. again, where he was both the producer and the writer, and uh, and he was allowed to sit in on all the all the production of it. Um, but uh, Network really does, uh, you know, you know, in a in a you know the career of an artist in this case, an artist who is a screenwriter, you know, really stands out there as you mentioned as a it's a Chayefsky, it's a Chayefsky project. I agree. I mean, I think that the soul of it, what it's about, certainly the verbosity of the speeches given to the to every character, all the hallmarks of Chayesky, but hot take on full cast and crew. Watching it this time 
And because on the podcast, we've had occasion to do a few Sidney Lumet films and read, read a lot about him and, and learn a lot about him. I also feel like Lumet doesn't get the credit he quite deserves in some ways. Like, yes, he's amongst people like us, you know, sort of adored and revered and worshipped. But I think during the time of his career, he had kind of a workman-like reputation, you know, and, and in a way, I think that's one of the reasons why he got the opportunity to direct this film, not necessarily because Chevsky didn't respect him, because I don't think that's the case at all. I think he respected him very much. But I don't think Sidney Lumet had the auteur personality, although his films, now that you look back at them, to me, are the work of an auteur in many ways. I think it's. I think in that Iskop book, there's that Iskop book. There's even a, a quote from Lamet where he says, "I'm not an auteur." Yeah. You know the reason why he was part of the reason why he was uh, hired to do this movie was because he was known as a very efficient, well organized guy. You know, he didn't fall in. He wasn't in the, uh, you know, Coppola, <laughs> Coppola school mm-hmm. of uh, of. Um, not caring about uh, budget overruns. You know, he was a guy who would come in on Tuesday, set everything up, rehearse it, shoot it all on Wednesday and move on. And he was famous for finishing films on time and under budget. You know, a guy who uh, paid a lot of attention to detail, but he wasn't into sort of, he wasn't, at least my impression is, that he wasn't sort of into, you know, the you know, the, the mechanics of the, uh, of the storytelling in the same way that uh, Chayefsky was. And that, like I said before, that was a way that they really complemented each other. I think it's probably more accurate to say he wasn't into the theatrics of storytelling that many directors of that era became known for and that we love, like a Scorsese or a Coppola. And, but I think Lumet was every bit as capable of moving the camera as brilliantly as those guys. And his sparseness, particularly in this movie, is so appropriate. And the way it's put together is so amazing. I saw in one of the featurettes that the editor said, when it, when it came time to edit the film, I think they edited the film in four or five weeks, which is kind of unheard of for a feature film. Uh, and to your point, he actually had two weeks of rehearsal before they started rolling the cameras, which I think Bill Holden, of all people, said in his entire career, <laughs> he had never rehearsed a picture. Think about that. Yeah. That's just yeah. so crazy. Like we, when we did Moonstruck, we were talking about Norman Jewison doing the same thing, treating it like a play. Mm-hmm. marking out where the definitions of the rooms are that the actors are moving through, which is something that Lumet did on this picture as well, where they taped out the dimensions of the television spaces that they were going to be moving through. And they had two weeks to rehearse the material. And Faye Dunaway talks about how that was so great because when they were actually on the set, they had such a base of knowledge of what the scene was about and what they were supposed to do that they could do that, but then efficiently also say, well, what if I went over here to the filing cabinet instead of went into her office? And then they had time to try some other things that ended up making it into the picture that you just otherwise wouldn't have found if on the typical movie, you have no time to do that. You know, uh, I think the more typical movie experience is what Ned Beatty had, where I think he was hired on a Saturday, he met with Lumet on a Sunday, and the camera was rolling on him on Monday. It is one day he said, it's a one day part. And he kind of famously said, he always tells actors, never turn down a one day part because I got nominated for an Academy Award for a one day part. 
know, right. you, you could too. Right. Now, did you notice, I don't know if you caught this, that uh, there were a couple of pages of his dialogue from that famous scene in the corporate bo- boardroom. I'm not, I don't, wasn't clear to me whether they cut it out of the film or whether it was cut before it was put on film. But if you go back and watch that scene again, that famous scene, he brings the curtains together, the, all the lights sort of like uh, come down and there's that just sort of that pin light on him. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? That actually is somewhere very late in the piece, in the, right. in the piece of dialogue that Chayefsky had written for him. And they scratched out the first page or so. To me, it actually, I mean, I love this movie and there are, there are a million things to like about it. I do feel like while Beatty's performance is really strong in that scene, it feels a little bit like he, like he kind of starts in the middle of it. Do you agree with that? Well, it's interesting you say that because he says that when he was when he was shooting it, and again, he's only there for a day, or I think he said he had two days, that he was kind of feeling like, I'm going over the top here. But Sidney Lumet kept saying like, no, 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 this is actually, this isn't even enough yet. You think you merely stopped a business deal. That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. And he said, now when I watch the movie, I'm so over the top. But I think that's what they were after in his type of a, a character that would read to Howard Beale like God. He had to be that big. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? But I, I didn't. I didn't feel. For me, what, I'm just saying that from a dramatic perspective and from a writer's perspective, I feel like like that scene. Then that scene, he starts at eleven, and I, I love that. Just have, I want him to start at around eight. Okay. Well, anyway, yeah, this scene is so freaking ridiculous in how the shot is constructed. Mm-hmm. And this location, which I feel like I've seen in so many movies, maybe I've just seen it in so many Sidney Lumet movies. Oh, you don't know what this is? Well, I know what it is. I know what it is, but yes, please tell the listeners. This is the New York Public Library. Right. The scene for just before this is the scene where Robert Duvall's character is, you know, escorting Peter Finch's character up the stairways. That's the that's the lobby of the of the New York Public Library. And then this was a room that was up in the, uh, I guess if they've got some kind of boardroom conference room in there yeah. um, that they found, and they weren't allowed to, they weren't allowed to do much in there as far as the the lighting and the rigging. So they're yeah. making best use of of the facilities that were already in the room. And that incredible composition with all the green hooded lamps on that yeah. incredibly long conference room table, yeah. and Lumet talks about. Owen Roisman, who's the director of photography, using these different lenses 
really kind of, I think, at two or three points during Ned Beatty's speech, where we we get closer in a way, but we're still in this incredible, almost ethereal shot between the lamps with Beatty at the far end of a table orating. And it's just such an incredible location, which I think is one of the things I always love about a lot of Sydney Lumet pictures is even though a lot of this movie is shot in what was just a disused corporate floor of the MGM office building in New York City, and that's where all the TV sets and things take place except for the stuff that was shot for the actual TV shows, which took place in a, in a TV soundstage in Toronto. But even just using the, the space, the way they use them and the way they shot the offices, it's such a sense of place, which is what I think of when I think about all the Sidney Lumet films that I love, like The Verdict or uh, 12 Angry Men or Night Falls on Manhattan or any of, these, any of these great films that have such a sense of place because of the thought process, I think, that goes into them. And this, this setup that, that just simple throwaway things like you're talking about when Duval leads Howard Beale up the stairs and he and two kind of supposedly corporate gentlemen are walking down the stairs past them and Howard Beale just immediately launches into a declamatory I have I've <laughs> I've come to make my witness yeah, or something to, like that. <laughs> Duval just kind of grabs him on the shoulder and like hustles him up. Yeah, it's such a complete incredible movie for actors. I mean, my god, it's insane. I think what was it? 5 Academy Award nominations for acting. Yeah. So it's, it is the perfect balance between a writer and a director. I really feel like Sidney Lumet specifically added so much to the screenplay. And I know that like Chayefsky would write really novelizations in addition to his screenplay in order to give a sense right. of place and what he wanted. There you go. <laughs> so here I have the, this is, I have the network book now. This was, he wrote this, he wrote the screenplay and then they hired another guy to actually write this novelization. He must have hated um, that. Huh? He must have hated that. Who, Chayefsky? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, Unless we haven't they paid gotten, him. <laughs> right. Well, we haven't gotten too much around to talking about Chayefsky's truculent personality <laughs> and his inability to sort of separate himself from any part of his projects mm -hmm. and you know, there's, I think, again, it may have come from the, um, from the Iskop book that we talked about, about how the, uh, the novelist, uh, the guy who was doing the adaptation for the novel was so excited about getting a chance to work with, uh, with Tyeski. Yeah, yeah. It was like, be careful what you wish for. Because Tyeski sure. was such an asshole, mm -hmm. um, to this guy, um, and writing these, these long, you know, red pen notes about, you know, swearing at him about, being too creative uh, with the characters, right? And, you know, imbuing the characters with uh, you know emotions and impulses that that uh, Chayefsky did not agree with, and the guy ended up being really uh, sour on the whole project. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I have this. Yeah. I'm sorry, so I keep saying this. I forget that we're on the uh, yeah. Uh, what I'm, what I'm auditory up, medium. What I'm holding up in front of me again is the is the network book. I also have, this is Altered States. Ah, brilliant. Okay, now this is the only novel that, that he wrote. Actually right. wrote. And it was very, the, it was a, a situation similar to something that I've heard you talk about on the podcast a few times, which is 
you know, if you're going to write a screenplay, maybe it's a good idea to write it out as a novel first and then adapt it from your own work. Yes. Um, and I think that's what Chayefsky had been, somebody had convinced Chayefsky to try that with Altered States. Um, this book, uh, frankly, is kind of an info dump mm. uh, book in which he takes all of his research in regard to, you know, the, uh, the scientific parts sure. of Altered States and just sort of goes on and on and on with all kinds uh, of detailed statistics. There's some interesting stuff in the book, too, but it does, it's not a great book. Uh, you can see you could what you what you see is the building blocks of a screenplay. Yeah, I wonder with that book, did he even intend for that to be a novelization, or was it sort of a business thing that was like, "Hey, if you can cobble together a book, Patty, we'll help you with that tax lien you're currently facing." That could be the case. I mean, the project was fraught. You don't want to go too into altered states unless you want to talk about it. Great movie, but, though. Yeah. It wasn't a seizure. You saw the x-rays, Mason. There was clearly something anterior to the larynx that looked like a, a laryngeal sac. That's strictly simian. I obviously regressed to some quasi-simian creature. I'm going to show this someone who can read a right, because you're reading it wrong. That's all there is to it. Because <laughs> no one's going to tell me you de-differentiated your goddamn genetic structure for four goddamn hours and then reconstituted. I'm a professor of endocrinology at the Harvard <laughs> Medical School. I'm an attending physician at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital. I'm a contributing editor to the American Journal of Endocrinology, and I'm a fellow and vice president of the Eastern Association of Endocrinologists and president of the Journal Club. And I'm not going to listen to any more of your capitalistic, quantum, friggin' dumb, limbo, bumbo, jumbo. I'm going to show these to a radiologist. I mean, I don't know if he would say that, but that's like a foundational movie that I think of in my teenage years. Like that felt kind of like forbidden. That's like one of those first movies that you kind of watch as a, as a teenager before you're allowed to go to R-rated movies. Right. right? Yeah. That, that was always just such a, a mind fuck of a movie to me without even right. knowing at the time, like, you know, I had no idea who Patty Chayefsky was or watching it for, who was that? Cronenberg? Ken Russell. Ken Russell. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. sure that I'm sure that I'm sure he and Ken Russell had a brilliant time together. Those are two oh, people well, that should he, not be collaborating on a film project. Ken Russell was actually, I think he was the third director. Um, <laughs> and after Chayefsky got the first two fired and he wanted Ken Russell fired as well. But they had, by that time they were so deep into the production that the Howard Gottlieb and the other producers came to uh, Chayefsky and said, look, if we fire this guy with this movie is never going to happen. And that was when Chayefsky was like, okay, take my name off it. And I don't know if you go, if you go back and look at the, uh, at the opening credits of Altered States, literally it says <laughs> he used a pseudonym right. for, for his screenplay. And so the, the opening credits said, uh, it was, uh, what's his name? Um, Simon Aaron or something mm -hmm. like Aaron mm -hmm. Simon. And it says screenplay by Aaron Simon based on the novel by Patty Chayette. <laughs> <laughs> you're both the same person. <laughs> It's funny when I was watching Network, I don't think I've ever seen the on-screen credit that I was reminded he has in Network, which is the film opens, then you have the title, just Network, and the next thing that comes up is by Patty Chayefsky. Yes. And before, before Sidney Lumet, before William Holden, or anything else. By, I've never seen that in another movie. A thing about Patty that when I'm reading about him, he's such a fascinating person to read about. And I really encourage anyone who has an interest in the making of movies and geniuses in general to read Itzkoff's book, because not only is David Itzkoff 
probably one of the two funniest people on Twitter, but he's a brilliant writer about movies and TV, and he really gets into the fun stuff, the stuff I like about the making of movies. One of the interesting things about Patty Chayefsky that I took away from reading the book was to remember to have fun in your work and to not hold on to it and clutch it so desperately and so tightly because I don't think he derived a lot of joy and pleasure out of things that he should have because of his utter fixation and devotion to getting it exactly the way he wanted it. And I think that's a good artistic lesson for everybody. Well, that may be true, but let me just, um, let me just uh, uh, counterpoint you for a minute here because the theme of this movie, the theme with Hospital, the, uh, the movie he made before this, and maybe even Alter States is, you know, what he was the master at was anger and channeling, you know, his anger at the world, uh, you know, into these, into these great screenplays. And if he didn't have that, would they, you know, would they have the same bite that, uh, you know, that, that came, came out of the end product? Sure, but, that, but why does that remove the ability for one to say, I wrote it, I'm, I'm happy with you as a director. I understand that when I turn things over to be made into films, it's, it's no longer mine. And I'm happy to now move on to the next act of writing that gives me great pleasure and allows me to function normally in the world. Because he was, a, he was tortured through his whole life by his involvement with show business in all of its forms. Like you can't bend, you can't bend show business to your will. I, I, I find myself thinking of two movies a lot in watching this movie. One of them was actually all that jazz, bizarrely, because it doesn't really have anything to do with, obviously, the news business or American culture per se, but it has to do with the creative process. And I, I found myself thinking about that movie a lot, about Roy Scheider's performance a lot in that movie. And I also thought a lot about being there, which felt like a companion in a way to this movie in a different way. Like a Jersey Kaczynski and a Patty Chayefsky have a lot of similarities and, and things that they're both interested in and the way that they so brilliantly do satire is so intelligently informed that when I was watching Network, I was sort of like, oh yeah, same guy wrote this that wrote, uh, wrote Being There, right? And I was completely forgot that Jersey Kaczynski is an entirely separate, also tortured person, but not tortured in the same way that Patty Chayefsky was. Right. Yeah, I think you've got something there in regard to being there about how, you know, in both cases, uh, these screenwriters are using institutions, particularly in being there, sort of the, you know, political Washington institution as kind of a straw man for what they really want to say, right. which is that the fabric of society is, uh, is off kilter and misguided. You know, there's... You, you go back and you look up anybody who talks about um, this movie network, including any of the actors, and they'll say, you know, the movie took a lot of criticism for um, the way it's treated the institution of television and TV news, but that's not really what Chayefsky's target here was. What, right. you know, the real, the, what he's really talking about here is the audience. Yes. Um, uh, and how we've and how we failed as how we fail as a culture. Yes. Um, and that in this case, television, the media, their problems are all symptoms. Um, versus totally agree. Disease. This is what I was saying about the moment we're living in now. 
I'm, I'm past being mad at, you know, Trump or Fox News or even CNN. You know, I'm mad at us and our failings. And it's the same thing I think that Patty Chayefsky is angry at in this movie. You're so right. It's not TV. It's he's seen the enemy and the enemy is us. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Yes, the anger, of course. But I feel a lot of heart, like, in the way that the critique of us, for me, is, and maybe this is because I'm, I identify almost entirely with the Bill Holden character as kind of the romantic figure who comes from an era of TV news that probably you and I would both romanticize and, and kind of uh, be interested in. And he's really the character, the only character who has a heart here, right? That we can grab onto. Maybe Beatrice Strait, his, his wife uh, in the film, brilliant performance by her. Right. But, but Bill Holden is the only one of the main characters who is alive, even as he's being eaten alive by the very thing that ultimately he escapes. So kind of like Jersey Kaczynski and being there where there's such heart underneath the satire, right? I don't see an absence of that in network. Like I, I still feel that belief in humanity that a lot of Chayefsky's stuff can kind of contain. I mean, look at Marty. That's like such a, that's such a humanistic feeling movie even as it does also criticize us for the way we would view someone like Marty. Marty, I don't want you hanging around the house tonight. I want you to go take a shave and go dance. Ma, when are you going to give up? You got a bachelor on your hands. I ain't never going to get married. Uh, you're going to get married. Ma, sooner or later, there comes a point in a man's life when he's got to face some facts. And one fact I got to face is that whatever it is that women like, I ain't got it. I chased after enough girls in my life. I, I went to enough dances. I got hurt enough. I don't want to get hurt no more. I just called up a girl this afternoon. I got a real brush off, boy. I figured I was past the point of being hurt, but that hurt. Some stupid woman who I didn't even want to call up. She gave me the brush. No, Ma, I don't want to go to Stardust Ballroom because all that ever happened to me there was girls made me feel like I was a, a bug. I got feelings, you know. I had enough pain. No thanks, Ma. Right. Well, we focused too much on unimportant qualities in people and that, you know, Marty is supposed, you know, supposed to be about basically two ugly people getting together. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, two, two ugly people finding each other and overcoming all of the expectations, uh, of their, you know, their family and their community about what it is that you're supposed to be doing with your life and who you're supposed to be with. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Chayefsky was a much, sort of softer character in 1955 than he was in mm. 1975. When, I mean, it's, it's interesting the way that those movies and those screenplays, you can see the fingerprints, the same fingerprints mm -hmm. as far as the way the characters talk to each other and 
the that there's uh, I know that there's there's sort of heart at the uh, at the core of it, like you said. You know, network is uh, is a lot more cynical than Marty. And, you know, part of it is, I guess, you know, the film being, you know, made 20 years apart. I get that. Another thing that I, I was thinking of in a contemporary sense was how brilliant it would be to have Chayefsky now in this politically correct times a million moment that we're living in, right? He would have had such a skewering take like he does in this movie over the revolutionaries and the radicals at a time, like his take on, uh, I, I just, one of my all time favorite movie scenes in any film, one of the best written scenes in any film is the negotiation scene between the black radicals and the network people. The Mao Tse Tung Hour went on the air March 14th. It received a 47 share. The network promptly committed to 15 shows with an option for 10 more. There were the usual contractual difficulties. Uh, equal to 20% 2-0, except with such percentages, I'll be 30% 3-0 for 90-minute or longer television programs. Have we settled that sub-licensing thing? No, no. We want a clear definition here. <clears throat> Gross proceeds should consist of all funds the sub-licensee receives, not merely the net amount remitted after payment to the sub-licensee or distributor. We're not sitting still for overhead charges as a cost prior to distribution. Dog! Fuck with my distribution costs. I'm making a lousy 215 per segment. I'm already deficiting 25 grand a week with Metro. I'm paying William Morris 10% off the top. And I'm giving this turkey 10th hour per segment another five for this fruitcake. And Helen, don't start no shit with me about a piece again. I'm paying Metro 20% for all foreign and Canadian distribution. And that's after recruitment. The Communist Party's not gonna see a nickel out of this goddamn show until we go into syndication. Oh, come on, Lorraine. The party's in for 7,500 a week production expenses. I'm not giving this pseudo-insurrectionary sectarian a piece of my show. I'm not giving him script approval, and I sure as shit ain't cutting him into my distribution charges. You fucking fascist! Did you see the film we made of San Marino jailbreak out demonstrating the rising up of the seminal prisoner class infrastructure? You can blow the seminal prisoner class infrastructure out your ass! I'm not knocking down my goddamn distribution charges! Man, give her the fucking overhead clause. Let's get back to page 22. Five, small a, subsidiary rights. Where the character, obviously kind of inspired by Angela Davis and the Black Panthers, is very perceptively arguing for minute film distribution points and other contractual arcana. And Chayefsky's jaundiced sense that even the revolution will be co-opted by television. It's not going to be televised. It's going to be eaten alive by television. Give her the goddamn overhead clause. So, so good. So good. And then, and then when, he's, when he's like, now can we get back to five, small a? Like, oh my God. It's the, the minutia. But... You know, you don't get that kind of ability to step back from the moment we're living in and kind of point out how everyone's full of shit, not just the people who we're supposed to think are full of shit, right? that's That's a brave thing for him to have done at that time. And we don't really have many people doing that today. Happens to the best ones. Don't ever forget what happened to that French actor. You know what I'm talking about? Juicy Smouillet, he's a very French, very famous French actor. (laughs) 
Y'all never heard of Juice and Smoothie? Juice and Smoothie is an actor from France. And, and he became famous on a show called Empire. One night, he was in Chicago late at night and was the victim. <laughs> he was the victim of a, a racist and homophobic attack. You see, Juicy Smouye is gay and he is black, not just French. Oh, it was a crazy story. Apparently, when he was walking down the street late at night, two white men came out of the shadows uh, with MAGA hats on, beat him up, tied a rope around his neck, called him all kinds of and put some bleach on him and ran off into the night. This shit was like international news. And everybody was furious, especially in Hollywood. It's all over everybody's Twitter feed and Instagram page. Justice for Juicy and all this shit. <laughs> the whole country was up in arms. He was talking about it all the time on the news. And, and for some reason, uh, African-Americans, we were like oddly quiet. <laughs> we were so quiet about this shit that the gay community started accusing African-American community of being homophobic for not supporting him. What they didn't understand is that we were supporting him with our silence. <laughs> because we understood that this was clearly lying. I would recommend to you know to anybody who uh, who's interested in the in the uh, the Iskoff book. One of the people that's interviewed this book is is fucking Bill O'Reilly, um, <laughs> and his quotes uh, are spot on mm -hmm. as far as the way that he was personally inspired by the Howard Beale character mm -hmm. in this in, in this movie. <laughs> Is this, hor is this horrifying or surprising? It's horrifying to me because, um, you know, being somebody who you know, embraces the, you know, the left side of the mm -hmm. political spectrum, I found myself really challenged by agreeing with all these things that, um, that Bill O'Reilly had to say about the movie. And it raises a question for me because I think about this Patty Chayefsky how he was so, you know, militantly pro-Israel. You know, he took, he was taking on sort of different, parts of the political spectrum in this mm -hmm. uh, in this movie, but not the least of which was, you know, the remnants of 60s radicalism. I mean, they were being goofed on as much oh, as yeah. the, as much as the, um, you know, the corporatists. Absolutely. I'm wondering when you talk about, you know, Chayefsky with us today in, mm -hmm. you know, 2020, you know, making his movie, you know, the Internet. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think he'd be a political conservative? I think he's one of those people who whose whose eye sees what it sees in in every aspect of whatever side of the aisle you're talking about. And that's the thing I think that's so lacking today is everything is so divided and there isn't even room 
to make fun of one side or another from within the side. Right. Yeah. And, and to mm-hmm. me, that type of commentary and satire is so necessary for those of us who would agree with his political persuasion or your political persuasion or anyone's right. Like I think that the ability to, to be smart enough to understand where you could be made fun of is a very essential quality for anyone to possess, right? And taking yourself too seriously and not being able to understand where you are a caricature is a liability. And, and actually, if you want to talk about a movement that you're trying to create politically, you know, it, it, that's why we all we love the people who don't take themselves that seriously, right? Because that's all of us, really. Like very few people have the straight conviction to absolutely believe something and brook no discontent. Yeah. So hold on one second. Yes, yeah. dear. What is this? And how long has it been? Out? Oh, it's hot chocolate that I made for you as part of your surprise. Okay. Sorry. So Total speculation. Writers like him tend to to drift to the right. I guess I'm not yeah. sure why that is. I think probably because of what I'm talking about in point, right? Like that his own people, because he probably he was he would be a lefty, yeah. But his own people couldn't handle his own satirical barbs directed at them. Yeah, and yet the other side definitely would embrace those barbs towards the left, right? Yeah. I mean, look at Mamet. Isn't he like this guy who has drifted so far to the right in yeah, some, bizarre, some bizarre way that, that he's canceled, right? He's canceled. Um, and he's not someone who I think observed us with the same type of eye that we're talking about here, but that's the lone voice that Chayefsky was. Can you think of any movie that's as prescient as this is. I mean, at the time, Chayefsky was sort of like got it from, you know, he got praise, particularly creative types, the Hollywood types, they all loved it. And then all the, the, um, you know, the, the corporate types and the news types, you know, the, the news people that he had sort of like, they had entrusted him mm-hmm. to investigate their, the way that they made the news. And they all said it was preposterous. <laughs> um, and certainly there are things about it to this day that seem uh, silly and overblown, but he was pretty... He, oh, my God. Uh, he, was, he was amazingly right. There's a quote, again, in that Iskoff book where they uh, interview Keith Olbermann. Mm. Olbermann says something of, of Network, which is, everything that happens in this movie, I've seen happen in television, uh, and much of it to me. <laughs> well, having worked with Keith, I can say I've seen much of it happen... And have have it happen because of Keith, too. Yes. Sure. Yeah, no, it is. I, there was another quote, uh, someone, I can't remember, I want to say it was like Ben Stiller or somebody strange or somebody who had shown the movie to some younger people and they didn't get that it was a satire. It had all come so true by now that it didn't play to them as crazy. Like that news show intro with the psychic and the, the brilliant kind of uh, Matahari and her skeletons in the closet. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it. How do you feel? We're mad as hell, and we're not going to take this anymore. Ladies and gentlemen, the Network News Hour with Sybil the Soothsayer. Jim Levin, and here sits the Emma's Truth Department. 
Kalahari and her skeletons in the closet. For tonight, another segment of Vox Populi. And starring the mad prophet of the airways, Howard Beale. They're like, yeah. They're not thinking of it as prescient brilliance. They're just like, yeah, I, I could see that on TV. Uh-huh. Like everything has come true. Right. And this movie, when you talk about being prescient, I mean, it's, it's beyond uncanny and it still holds up. Like those intros to the show is so good still. The way the music is, the way they shot the crowd reactions live in the studio. I just, there are moments in this film that take my breath away still. The first time Beale collapses in that amazing set. Yeah. And there's just the perfect hint of a pause as they cut away to the audience and the audience then erupts in laughter. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off! And then you see the audience warm-up guy saying like, yeah, come on, like, it's all part of the act. Right, and, then, and the way that he collapses, and you're, you're the audience at that point, too, yeah. and you're like, you know a little bit that he's, because we've had a collapse scene. We've I had think, a collapse before, before yeah. But we know a little bit about what's happening, but we don't, but what you, what you could not possibly predict is that at that point, Lumet gets behind the TV camera, and it follows, you know, on the... Uh, follows on the crane or whatever it is mm-hmm. and comes up on top of Howard Beale to make sure that they capture him in a close-up when he's passed out on the, on the, on the floor of the studio because it's part of the show. Part of the show. And the cinematographer says, he said, you know, in this scene, what if we use these star lights, which were kind of like show busy, you know, talking about a film like All That Jazz or something where you might see a very theatrical use of lighting. But in that same scene, when they cut away to the audience, they have those star lights up at the top and it, and it gives it this otherworldly kind of quality. It gives it that surreal quality when mixed with the incredibly both genuine and spontaneous and completely forced reaction of the audience. That's like such the brilliance of the way that scene is cut together for me. Yeah. It's the pause after he collapses that contains the genius because it's not as if he collapses and the audience leaps to their feet instantaneously right? They have to be told. Yeah. And once they're told what to do and how to feel, they're a hundred percent on board. Turn them off. I want to ask you, what do you think about these places where Chayefsky is sort of dropping in these literary references or um, historical references, which are pretty obscure. I Mm -hmm. mean, I love, don't get me wrong, the scene you're talking about, I absolutely love it, but do you think that they're doing a disservice to the audience at all by having these references to, I don't know, Mata Hari, and I don't know if you if you picked up on it, but the uh, it's uh, Jim, Jim Webbing's Emis, which is like, what are they saying? Emis <laughs> is Yiddish for the truth, 
right. I mean, who, who would know that? I, I mean, I only got it because, like I said, I, I have this novel and I went and, and was able to figure out what the word was supposed yeah, to be. Yeah. And, and then I tracked it down and Googled it and it's Yiddish for the truth. Mm. And there's there are all kinds of little spots here where Faye Dunaway's character is talking about she'll she just sort of drop in the name of a you know a 14th century uh mm-hmm. you know Italian monk or uh you know these other kind of obscure religious things. There's a there's a, a reference right at the beginning to a character in Tale of Two Cities. I'm curious how you respond to that as somebody who has to, who has a who you know you in your work. You have to make stuff that an audience responds to. Right. And is it your, do you have a position that you should just say what you want to say and let it, let the audience figure it out? Or do you think that these things are over the top on Chayefsky's part? I, I don't think so on his part. I think that you're in the hands of a master. Actually, the thing, when you're talking about that, it makes me think how much I dislike a second rate amateur Chayefsky pretender like Aaron Sorkin. Okay. You know, who does that to the, nth degree all the time, exactly what you're talking about, except has even a a, a higher degree of implausibility in the total recall of the character. I'm thinking of um, Newsnight with uh, Jeff Daniels. Yeah, okay. Right? Remember the scene where Jeff Daniels is asked a question from an earnest college student in the audience and then goes on a 14-minute, like, incredibly statistically analytical diatribe about us? What about the people? Why is it not the greatest greatest country in the world? Professor, that's my answer. You're saying yes. Let's talk about fine. Sharon, the NEA is a loser. Yeah, it accounts for a penny out of our paycheck, but he gets to hit you with it anytime he wants. It doesn't cost money. It costs votes. It costs airtime and column inches. You know why people don't like liberals? Because they lose. If liberals are so fucking smart, how come they lose so goddamn always? Hey. And with a straight face, you're going to tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world who have freedom? Canada has freedom. Japan has freedom. The UK, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Australia, Belgium has freedom. So 207 sovereign states in the world, like 180 of them have freedom. All right. And yeah, you, uh, sorority girl, just in case you accidentally wander into a voting booth one day, there's some things you should know. And one of them is... There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yosemite? Did you know that 14.2 million Americans? Yeah, it's like, give me a fucking break. Like, that irritates me in a movie. This didn't, I didn't even, no, this stuff did not bother me. And I, I, I actually don't like speechifying of the type that I didn't really even realize there was so much of in network until I watched it this time. Yeah. Like, when I think about watching network in the past, I think about the message first, right? I think about how brilliant it is and how funny it is how well it holds up, how incredible the performances are. My God, like towering acting performances. But I'm actually not a fan of the type of 
movie generally where you have, as Itzkoff says in the book, these kinds of slow burns, powder keg of speech, like Bill Holden and Faye Dunaway breaking up. After living with you for six months, I'm turning into one of your scripts. Well, this is not a script, Diana. There's some real actual life going on here. I went to visit my wife today because she's in a state of depression. So depressed that my daughter flew all the way from Seattle to be with her. And I feel lousy about that. I feel lousy about the pain that I've caused my wife and my kids. I feel guilty and conscious stricken and all of those things that you think sentimental, but which my generation calls simple human decency. And I miss my home because I'm beginning to get scared shitless. Because all of a sudden it's closer to the end than it is the beginning. And death is suddenly a perceptible thing to me with definable features. You're dealing with a man that has primal doubts, Diana. And you've got to cope with it. I'm not some guy discussing male menopause on the Barbara Walters show. I'm the man that you presumably love. I'm part of your life. I live here. I'm real. You can't switch to another station. Uh, every one of these clips that we could play, uh, Duval, Diana pitching things, all of the Peter Finch speeches as, as Beale, Ned Beatty, like these are all Chayefsky's thoughts and mission and message put in the mouths of these characters and incredibly literate and, as you say, referential to things. But it just, it works because he's so fucking good. Like, yeah. he's so good. <clears throat> Lumet is so good. Mm -hmm. The cinematographer is so good. The editor is so good. And finally, the actors. Like, we have to give them so much of this credit to me because you can write whatever you want. Like, Chayefsky could write whatever he wants on the page. But if you don't have these actors and you don't have those actors in the hands of Sidney Lumet, you don't have this work. This could yeah. so easily have been such a disastrous mess of soliloquies, you know? Um, which, which is like, that's the thing I'm not a big fan of in a lot of the Sorkin stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But to me in this movie, no, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me because the writing is so good and the yeah. acting is so phenomenally on point. Like Bill Holden, what the hell? I mean, to think of an actor at that stage of his career who is so, has no, what's Bill Holden's place in Hollywood in 1976? It's not even existent, right? Right. He was living out of the country <laughs> half the year at the He's time. He's living in Switzerland. Yeah. You know, like to turn in that performance, easily the greatest performance of his career, easily. There's not even a, I mean, he won an Oscar for Stalag 17. Great, great movie, but a different type of movie and a different type of acting. Right this movie where you're just where his guts are like ripped out and shown and he's so plausibly believably doing that mm -hmm. it's phenomenal phenomenal i had an experience with this acting and you may not agree with this but when i going back to when i first saw this movie back when i was 15 or 16 i remember liking so much about this movie again because it appealed to my interests 
And there was this love story mixed in, this love story between uh, the Bill Holden character and the Faye Dunaway character. And I found it at the time when I first saw it, I found it that was sort of the long parts of the movie Mm. because my unformed, not fully formed brain at that Mm -hmm. point was... Uh, was thinking about the the love story parts of sort of the you know sort of the squishy parts of the movie and it felt somehow that it was kind of obligatory that mm-hmm. these characters you know have a love story in the middle of the of the cool stuff and I remember thinking when I first saw this I'm like why are they so bad mm. that I thought that what I was watching was a weakness in the film which was that these characters were, that I was watching terrible acting. Mm. And it wasn't until I, I was able to see the movie a few more times that it began to dawn on me that, you know, they're obviously, they're actors playing characters, but their characters are playing characters. Exactly. To tie this back together with what, with what you were saying about the acting, that there are layers to what to what's going on here between the actors and their characters and the, and the director that is so subtle that mm-hmm. it can come off a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's telling this it's 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 depicting these characters and telling a story in a way that is really brilliant. Well, I also think that it points to what you were saying before, which is that's what Chayefsky had to fight for so hard because if he did not fight to have that love story in quotes play out exactly as it did throughout this film, you know, a hundred times a studio executive is going to say, can't they just be in love? Can't, can't, you know, does it like, does he have to leave his wife and kids? Like, you know, you know, that's going to get pushed that way a million times. And to keep a scene where the falling in love scene is both played romantically in terms of the way it's shot as they frolic on a East Hampton beach and have dinner and tumble into the motel and, her entire side of the conversation is just prattle about the most inane television stuff. Christ, it's cold in here. See, we're paying on these nuts from the Ecumenical Liberation Army 10,000 bucks a week in order to turn in authentic film footage of the revolutionary activities. And that constitutes inducement to commit a crime. And Walter says we'll all wind up in federal prison. We'll be front page for months. We'll have more press than Watergate. All I need is six weeks federal litigation. And the Malik can start carrying its own time slot. I think it's so brave to shoot that and keep that in a movie this way. And I think the only person who probably would truly fight for that is Patty Chayefsky, right? right. Like, because I agree with you that when you first watch it, it's a problem that I sometimes have, even though I appreciate these satirical movies so much. I still have like the heart of a romantic and I want things to work out for people that I want it to work out for. Like in this movie, I'm on good ground because in the end, I feel like Beatrice Strait is such an amazing actor that the, the, the spurned wife scene between her and Bill Holden is so brilliant and, and powerful and real that... I'm confident, even though we don't get to see it, that at the end when he leaves Diana, he's going to go back home and the family unit will be intact, which as a child of divorce two times over is important to me as a film goer. Okay. I want to know that in my head, but I think I just want to parse your thing a second. Like, yes, the early courting scenes between the two of them are, are jousty and kind of meant to be that light, but 
but in no way is the breakup scene anything but very brilliant, very direct, very powerful writing. That's not melodrama to me when they break up. And Faye Dunaway, oh my God. Like, was there anyone better than her at that time? Like, she is so good. And to do this role, which is brilliant, but kind of thankless, like she doesn't get to do a lot of the Faye Dunaway things that we would identify her with in a movie like Chinatown, Mm -hmm. right? The vulnerability, like the the emotion, the, the, the turmoil that I think makes her such an appealing screen actor. Uh, in this, she's got to be full steam ahead and can't show any of that. You know, mm-hmm. the, only, the only time it gets through to her is when he leaves her. It's that scene where he says, I just want you to love me. I just want you to love me, primal doubts and all. You understand that, don't you? And this brilliant cutaway to her and the absolute truth of her just saying, I don't know how to do that. I'll I'll be with you in a minute, Matt. I don't know how to do that. Right. Uh, so it's devastating. She's so interesting because it's just, she's taking on a role of a highly unlikable character, mm-hmm. but she's not a villain. She's not Lady Macbeth. No. She's, she's not immoral. She's amoral. Yes. You know, she, she plays it brilliantly. Um, and I don't know what else, I don't know exactly what you could compare it to, you know, in the history of film or the history of theater, but that's a unique role for any actress to take on and a risky role for mm-hmm. any actress to take on. And it's also, which I didn't really remember until reading the Itzkoff book that the famous shot of her poolside at what her home oh, or, the, shot, or, or the Chateau Marmont yeah. uh, post her Oscar win for this film taken by the photographer who would then be her next husband yeah. uh, was directly related to this movie and this mm-hmm. Academy award winning performance. Lumet has a funny anecdote where when they were starting to rehearse, he saw her coming to him and he's such a savvy director of actors. And he was an actor himself, a child actor and, and, um, and then got out of that side of the business, but he knew actors so well. And I had said to Faye, Faye when I first met her, uh, I, I walked into her living room and she was seated on a couch all the way across the living room. And I said, I know what the first question is going to be from you. And that you're going to ask me, where's her vulnerability? And I'm going to tell you right now, she has none. And if you try to get any in, <laughs> I'll cut it out of the movie. And when he's, Bill Holden said that to her, and I said to her specifically, I said, Faye, you've got to remember our first conversation. If I see, her, see any tear brimming when I'm shooting your reaction, brimming in your eye, I, I won't use it. I'm warning you. And... Uh, and she got, got exactly what I meant, and she played the exactly perfect thing, which was, I don't know what you're talking about. Because he knew, and Chayefsky knew, that it had to be that way. And I think c- keeping it all that way up till that moment at the end of the film, that's the power of the dehumanizing effect of television you dramatized through a personal experience. 
So when he tells her, You've, you are television, you're shallow, you have no feelings, you're, you know, the devastating truth of that on her face is, is so powerful. And, and you're right that it's such a weird layer through the movie. And, and, and really, only until the end are you, does it pay off, right? Like, you're kind of like, why am I even following this dippy love story between this old man and this young woman, which is like the oldest cliche in the book. And even as they're doing it, they know they're playing out this kind of doomed soap opera together. In fact, there's all these great referential moments where Bill Holden has a line in his office where he's like, I'm supposed to be the romantic and you're supposed to be the young ingenue, you know, like he kind of, they call the script calls out. It's exactly what you're talking about that the, the roles that they're so, that they're so obviously playing even as themselves in the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that's like, it's so crazy. Uh, what about Duval? Do you think of him? What do you think of this movie ever? I realized last night that I went, I went through uh, Robert Duval's credits. Now, me too. I, and boy, what was that? Was that a roller coaster? It was a roller coaster for me. <laughs> I'm going to say what, what, what I thought about it because I saw so many movies that I don't remember him being in. Which I don't think is necessarily, I don't think that's just something bad about Robert Duvall. It's just something that I can't quite square. Wait, do you mean that these are movies that you've otherwise heard of that you no, don't movies remember? I've seen that I don't remember him. I don't remember what he did in that movie. Oh, because I was going to say, I can't think of another actor who, when I look through his IMDb page, I think, how did this guy get away by, with being considered one of the greatest actors of his generation, which he is. But he did so much dreck for 50 years. Like he made hundreds of terrible movies that I completely right. forgot about. Right. And yet it just shows you both, if you stick around long enough to hit legend status, we imbue so much into the actor on screen. So when we see him now, you know, he's Tom Hagen. Uh, he, he's all these iconic roles, right? Yeah. But my God, I had the same experience. I was like, he took everything. I mean, even after Godfather, yeah. he's like a string of all these forgettable movies. But I guess that's the difference. He's not that leading man type that could forge a career that way. I guess in your own way, if you're that kind of character actor, you're always going to have that part in a movie that sometimes isn't all about you. Right. Well, he became a different guy in the course of his career. You know, you go back and you look at a lot of those 60s and 70s credits. He's the character guy, you know. He was the original Frank Burns. And yes, that was one of the ones I was like, oh, that's right. Why don't I remember that? <laughs> you know, and you didn't play it badly. Oh, uh, great. For some reason, you know, he was, he was doing these kind of character roles where he, you know, he was a, he was a serviceable guy who kind of, you know, he fit the part well and, and he worked, he worked well in ensemble type movies. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the eighties when he started to get into this kind of cowboy thing, mm -hmm. you know, with uh, the lonesome dove and the tender sure. and stuff like yeah. that. I realized, yeah, I think of him as a cowboy, <laughs> but he's from San Diego <laughs> and went, uh, you know, was uh, trained in like the Meisner school of acting. It's he called acting my boy. Shout out to you, a civil action. One of the great, great films that I love with Travolta and Duvall as his uh, legal nemesis in a, in a classic late career character actor Duvall role. Mr. Thatcher, Mr. Doyle asked me to bring this to you. 
when did he ask me? Yeah. Just now. On your lunch break? That hardly seems fair. I must never go to lunch, sir. Too much to do. Oh. I just grab something. You know, if I were you, I'd make a point of taking that hour or so away from all the noise and insanity of this place. I should do that. I'd find a place for myself where I could go that was relatively quiet and peaceful. Have a sandwich, read a magazine. Maybe listen to a game out at Fenway if one was on. And I'd make sure everyone knew I didn't want to be disturbed during that hour or so of solitude. Because that would be my time, my own private time. Which no one, if they had any sense of self-preservation at all, would dare interrupt. <laughs> if I were you. which is full of just funny little quirks and ticks, like the way he unwraps a sandwich or bounces a baseball or a tennis ball and listens to baseball on the radio. And I don't want this, uh, I don't want this brilliant discussion to uh, move on without making some mention of Peter Finch. Oh my God. Uh, for people who don't know, you know, won uh, the Academy Award for this movie posthumously. Mm-hmm. Um, he, can't remember if he died before he was i think he knew he was nominated but he died before the uh the show was broadcast he was not a well-known actor in the united states they sort of stumbled onto him a little bit by accident mm-hmm. and his performance in this movie is so stunning unbelievable uh, they could not have uh been more fortunate to find this guy you know the famous uh scene where I'm mad as hell scene. Yes. Did it in two takes. Sorry. I have to respect Patty Chayefsky's memory. I'm as mad as hell. Right. And I'm not going to take it anymore. So that's for the record. That's kind of a debatable point too, because I noticed that anytime Peter Finch says it, there's that extra sort of British as in there. Yeah. When anybody else, when the, uh, you know, when the crowd says it, or if you go back and look at any of the, uh, they drop that ad. They drop that, yeah. Only, it was only uh, Finchy, <laughs> uh, whoever said it that way. Yes. What you're actually seeing in the movie is the first half of the second take, then cut on to the second half of the first take. Correct. And I'm glad you said that because I was going to bring that. I would never have been able to get that mental math correct in my head. I hope I said it correct. I think you said you either said it correctly or you said it exactly the reverse. But okay. one way or the other, it's true. One or the other way. One way or the other, it's true. And at that point, after he did it, that Lumet got so worried about Finch mm. because he was not in great health, and they were worried that he was going to collapse for real mm-hmm. if they went if they went any further. And Lumet made a you know made a decision that he wasn't going to tax Finch any further uh, in shooting that scene. And and what you see is pretty much you know outside of out, you know outside of some creative editing uh, is a one to two take scene, and it's iconic. It's unbelievable. Peter Finch actually died in front of Sidney Lumet in the lobby of Beverly Hills Hotel. They were on the Oscar press tour. Sidney Lumet came down into the lobby and saw Peter Finch sitting on a little banquette cushion. And as while he was approaching him, he saw Finch just collapse off the, off this cushion. And he Mm -hmm. said he knew something was wrong because when they were doing those scenes that you're referring to, he was a nervous faller, he said. He, he had to put all these cushions down and, and he was always very nervous about collapsing and how he would collapse and, and not injuring himself when he collapsed. So 
he said, this fall was so natural and it was so, so slow that I knew something wasn't right. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like, it's mind boggling to think he, he died in front of <laughs> the director, like just before the Oscars, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and not to mention, I don't think we're spoiling the end of the, of network. It's a sad ending. Mm-hmm. It's a sad ending for, for, uh, for Howard, for Beale. Howard Beale. <laughs> yeah. And it's a sad ending that, um, you know, the, the, uh, the film that he would, uh, become, that would become his greatest film was also his swan song because yeah. he died before he got the Oscar. You know, the great Peter O'Toole story told on Letterman about his drinking escapades with Finchie. Have you heard no, of that? I ever? Don't know My friend, the late Peter Finch. Mm-hmm. And we were in Dublin together on the lash. (laughs) Lash? That means usually having a drop of something cheerful. I see. (laughs) And then doing a lot of leaping and shrieking and saying, why not? (laughs) And Finchie was living about uh, a few miles out of Dublin and I went back with him to his house where we were going to spend the night. And it was not too late, about Mm -hmm. (laughs) four-ish. 4 (laughs) a.m.? Yeah. And there was a tiny little hole-in-the-wall bar. And we thought we'd just drop in for the last one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, we went in and we had a couple of drinks. And the barman, it was a tiny little, really dirty little place, he said, "Um, boys... You had enough. You're having no more. So Finchie and I said, no, 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 no. We'll be having much more. (laughs) No, 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 says he. You're out. So we bought the bar. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Problem solved. It's one of the great stories ever told, as only Peter O'Toole can tell it. And it's second only to Peter O'Toole's story about Richard Harris and their drinking escapades in the annals of the most brilliant, carousing actor drunken stories of all time. Fantastic. Um, but yeah, Sidney Lumet didn't think Finchie could do it because he had an Australian accent. And this is such an American role that I think Finch submitted like an audio recording or something of him reading the New York Times in an, in an American accent. And that's kind of what solidified it. But even in Niskoff's book, they kind of say like, frankly, they were up against it. Like, it wasn't like, it wasn't, it's a choice that worked out brilliantly, but he's kind of honest in the book that he's sort of like, frankly, we really didn't have any other option. You know, like they'd exhausted all of these people. Let's talk a little bit about alternative casting. Okay. So a lot of these, so Chayefsky would write so much around the screenplay and left behind so much notation and so much thought process committed to paper that Iskoff had such an incredible trove of lists of actors for every role, some of which were never approached and others of which formally turned it down. Uh, well, I love the story of, you mentioned... Uh, uh, hospital a couple times, the yeah. hospital. So George C. Scott, who was the lead role in that film, was someone that they first thought of uh, for Howard Beale, right? 
And I guess when they approached George C. Scott, he tried to get his then wife the role of Diana Christensen. Right. And she was kind of, his wife was kind of a Broadway kind of a TV yeah. Yeah. character actress. I get this impression, but she was not, at least she didn't, she's not somebody that I remember. No, and to the, to their credit, the the uh, the producer said, you know, George, I'm sure she'd be fantastic, but the studio is simply going to insist upon a star in the part, like, you know, and they they're smart right. enough and to so, know that. And, and Scott said, he said, you know, he was like, if you're not using Trish, I ain't doing it. Exactly. <laughs> he could have done it. I mean, it would have been no. It's Peter Finch. It belongs to him forever. Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda. Too hysterical for Henry Fonda. Right, and too much swearing, I guess. Uh, Probably, yeah. Who else? Well, these are Howard, the Howard Beale characters. These are Howard Beale. Jimmy Stewart. Oh, okay. Gene Hackman turned it down. For Howard Beale? Mm-hmm. Don't see it. It says William Holton also turned it down. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Right, that he wanted, or that they wanted him to I do guess they. Beale. I guess they wanted him. I know that Ned Beatty replaced the original actor for that, for that role. Right. And, well, they had rehearsed with the. Oh, they rehearsed. The yeah, uh, a lot of actors considered for the Diana Christensen role, uh, Candace Bergen, Ellen Burstyn. I think Ellen Burstyn won the year. I think that Chinatown was also seventy four. Maybe they were both nominated the same year. Natalie Wood. Mm, interesting. Studio suggestions included Jane Fonda, Diane Keaton, Jill Clayburgh. And Marsha Mason. Mm. Some of those I could see. So I don't know about Marsha Mason. <laughs> That's all I have for alternative casting. Another interesting thing about Chayefsky, he is the only person to ever have won three Academy Awards for Best Screenplay. Oh, okay. By himself. Oh. There, are, there are other three-time winners. Woody Allen, Francis Ford Coppola, Charles Bracken, and Billy Wilder. But all of them were co-writers. Yeah. So there are five people who have won three Academy Awards for Best Screenplay, but Chayefsky's the only one, of course, to have won all three of them solo, which is crazy. Yeah. And the other two, of course, were Marty and The Hospital, as you mentioned. Yeah. Do you know that also in what Itzkoff found in Chayefsky's papers, and I love this detail, not only did he draft a entire corporate hierarchy for the fictional network UBS, mm-hmm. but he also drew up a complete seven-night primetime programming grid from 6 p.m. to 1 a.m. Yeah. With entirely fictional shows that he created with, as Itzkoff says, such evocative and snidely reductive titles as Surgeon's Hospital, Pedro and the Putts, Celebrity Canasta, paired on Wednesday evenings, of course, with Celebrity Mahjong, Lady Cop, and Death Squad. None of this information would make it into the screenplay, but it's part of the background that he would do. (laughs) Yeah, I want to take this opportunity to take you a little bit into my childhood, which was that I was a kid with a very active fantasy life, Mm -hmm. watched a lot of TV. One of the things, one of my sort of like childhood fantasy hobby things was that I had imagined in my mind when I was about nine or 10 years old, uh, I would play this little thing in my head of imagining an entire TV network. 
Ah, okay. Similar to the TV networks that I've, you know, that I, uh, that I've obsessed about on TV. Mm-hmm. And I did something very similar to uh, what Chayefsky did, which was uh, on notebook paper, I would write out primetime TV schedules. I would think up uh, what all my, what all my shows were that were going to run on, on, on my network, what actors would be in them. I wasn't quite knowledgeable enough about um, corporate org, uh, corporate org at the time when Mm -hmm. I was 10 years old, (laughs) but uh, I did go through the steps too of imagining what my own TV network was going to be. And, uh, and in particular, I was obsessed with TV news um, and I would and uh, I would uh, create the fictional characters who were going to play the real life uh, newscasters on the morning show and the uh, and the, the six o'clock show and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And um, I'd never heard of the movie network until I was later on when I was a teenager. But this TV network that I invented when I was 10 years old. Wait for it. UBS. Wow. Look at that. Uh, yeah. Now, in my case, it was the it was the United Broadcasting uh, right. System, and in this in, in Chayefsky's case, it was the Union Broadcasting System. Correct. So I don't know. I can't. It's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, but that was uh, a little that uh, I really identified with uh, Chayefsky's imagination uh, in in putting his network together. So listeners can look for Rick's forthcoming autobiography. I was a teenage Chayefsky. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Did you have this on the wall of your room? Uh, no, I kept it. I kept it in a in a three ring binder. <laughs> I wish I still had it. Oh my god! I can't believe you don't have it. Yeah. That would be amazing. I mean, my last guest had his little league scores from nineteen seventy six. Uh, I know. Right I, down, I remember. So. He, I mean, that guy kept he kept all that material but somewhere. It got lost. On you him. seem like an archive type. I'm surprised you don't have that. Well, I, I mean, I have some other things from my childhood, mm-hmm. but I can't find my uh, I can't find my UBS network notes. Believe me, I looked. Well, this is a good segue into your Latchkey TV uh, selections, if you're ready to do that. Sure. Hello? You're the only person yet on the podcast to select the evening news as one of his childhood uh, television (laughs) viewings. Let's start there because that's just so unique and brilliant that I laughed out loud when I saw that. Uh, One of your selections was the ABC Nightly News Wait for it, people, with Frank Reynolds. That's a deep cut. Sure. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings in London, Max Robinson in Chicago, Barbara Walters with an insider's report, and from our desk in Washington, Frank Reynolds. Good evening. Nearly 100 of the American athletes personally affected by the president's order to boycott the Moscow Olympics went to the White House today to hear a personal plea for support from the president. So, yeah, when I was a kid and I, and, I, and you know, we were, as, as this segment goes, uh, I, like you, was a kid who would come home from school and there'd be nobody there, right. including, uh, you know, my single mom who was at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, these hours uh, between school and nighttime homework were spent uh, watching TV. They were capped off every night before my mom got home with the ABC World News Tonight which in an odd way I found very comforting. There was something about, you know, the masculine voice mm-hmm. of, of, you know, this paternal figure coming in at uh, where I grew up. It was five o'clock news, not the six o'clock uh, national news. Mm-hmm. 
and this guy, Frank Reynolds, who I thought was very handsome and dignified. And I love the way he talked. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually brought a lot of, uh, a lot of comfort to me as, as, you know, a bit of a, uh, a lonely nerdy kid. And I loved to watch the news fed. It also fed into my whole fantasy about, you know, what was it like to be behind the scenes at, at network news mm-hmm. and, would I ever have uh, would I ever have the chance to work in a place like that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny because there was the network news, and then there was the fictional network news in the movie Network, mm-hmm. and then later in my life there was the real network news when I worked at CNN, mm-hmm. and uh, all three of them were pretty much alike. <laughs> really weren't that. <laughs> Really, not that much difference. Yeah, it really weren't that. There wasn't a great deal of difference. You know, there were some way. There were some ways that I, that when I got into working in network news, that I was, uh, you know, I was a little bit jaded by the time that I left. But um, it was pretty much what I thought it was going to be. There's the great story where Chayefsky was talking to John Chancellor, formerly of NBC News, and saying, "John, the way this crack up is written in my screenplay, would that ever happen in a real news environment?" And John Chancellor said, "Every single day." <laughs> That's right. I identify with what you're talking about, the news. I was, you just made me think that in this time we're living through right now, how much we miss a Peter Jennings or a Tom Brokaw who could bring us this terrible news, this distressing news, this scary news of what's going on in the world today, this pandemic that we're living through, but could do it in the way that you're talking about, could give us some hope amongst the different stories that, that were culled for our you know, consumption in that evening news broadcast, which is such a lost thing. I mean, I, I know it still exists, but I certainly haven't watched it in 20 years and I don't know anyone who does. Yeah, I mean, in my household, we were, we were an ABC household. Interesting um, choice. And, we were an NBC household. Right. And I, I was thinking about this um, <laughs> when I was coming up the list because I realized You have that, more credibility. It's a more credible choice for you. Well, I'm not necessarily making a, making a, 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 you know, a qualitative judgment of one news, one news channel versus the other. I'm thinking about, I don't know what was going on in my household that we were an ABC family mm. for whatever reason. And so we were watching ABC shows and when we and I got raised on watching ABC news. That was, mm-hmm. that was, uh, that was our channel. Like it was, you know, it was like something that you pick up as a kid, like mm-hmm. your religion is forced on you or, you know, or that my mm-hmm. parents were Republican. So I was supposed to be Republican and my parents watched ABC news. So I watched, uh, watched ABC news. And when the kids next door were watching like the NBC shows, I was like, what? That shows, those shows are crap. <laughs> no, I don't watch, uh, you know, the A team or whatever, cause it's not on ABC. Sure. Yeah, ABC News in the 70s and 80s had sort of a, uh, I think of it, I think, hard clinical news, like no bullshit, no, no frill, no, no, like NBC was always kind of a little warm and fuzzy, right? Even like Brokaw, the difference between Brokaw and, and like P, uh, Peter, the Peter Jennings era, but even Frank Reynolds, you know, as you say, was such a, such a stentorian definitive person, right? And ABC News evokes this. This is the way that it is. You know, I had this uh, this affinity with uh, with uh, Frank Reynolds, and then he died. Yeah, um, tragically. He, yeah, he died when I was probably you know twelve or thirteen years mm-hmm. old. And they and they brought in Jennings, but now, do you think that your predilection for the evening news had to do with the single mom home? Like, here's a man who is communicating to me. 
Oh, absolutely. No, I think, uh, I mean, a lot of it was uh, not only um, that the newscaster himself being a paternal figure, but, you know, it was, he was, uh, he was a man in my house where I, where I didn't really have one. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, let's move on to another completely Rick Brown choice, if ever there was one, the John Davidson show. Right. (laughs) From Hollywood, it's the John Davidson show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the star of our show, John Davidson. something right off the bat. I've been growing a mustache for nine days, and would you write to me if you care to, and let me know what you think of it. It's not in yet, but it's coming along. We, I want to find out, first of all, where our audience is from. You can, we, we have a representative group here. This has to do with our show today. Anybody here from uh, East Coast, from the Northeast? I don't know what kind of penetration this John Davidson show had for other people, or if they even saw it. It was the first show when I got home from school Again, I'm talking here 1980, so I'm like maybe sixth grade or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was the thing on, and I probably it had to have been on my ABC station, that when I turned on the TV, there was John Davidson. <laughs> and I wasn't particularly a fan of John Davidson, but he was ubiquitous. He in was. Now, for people who don't know who John Davidson is, he was this kind of glamour guy he was uh you know he's a very good looking kind of hollywood type he had great hair great hair he was basically uh, and, a support system for great hair yeah he had great <laughs> hair he was on he had his own tv talk show in the middle of the day he had this nighttime show um that's incredible great show um which i was fascinated by mm-hmm. he was on every uh TV network sort of, you know, like guest ensemble show, you know, the Love Boats and the Fantasy Island. Uh, Battle of the Network Stars. Battle yeah, every show. He was on every show. And in addition to being an actor and, and, a, uh, and a talk show host, right? I see your air quotes yeah. there, actor. <laughs> he was a terrible singer. Who did this kind of Merv Griffin-esque thing? His thing was that he opened every show by singing a song. Yeah. And typically these songs were kind of like, um, not exactly top 40, more like sort of like adult contemporary hits. Sure, yeah. Or maybe like a, maybe sort of like a soft country song. Mm -hmm. This guy would walk out there instead of doing a monologue, John Davidson, he would come out there a lot of times with the fucking banjo. (laughs) Which to me was like the most hillbilly uh, instrument oh, that gosh. anybody could pick up, and he was in this, you know, this uh, sophisticated Hollywood studio playing the banjo and singing some Carpenter song. And Brilliant. it was a little bit. My experience with John Davidson, again, seeing him on every show and seeing him as the first, you know, first friend after school, mm-hmm. um, was a little bit of hate watch. Um, because there were other things on, but I could not take my eyes off of John Davidson. And he was so campy and corny. Um, and I just got, I was obsessed with it. He wouldn't have Henry Winkler, but he'd have Anson Williams, that kind of thing. <laughs> Speaking of the ABC family. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because here you are, 
ABC News purist with a with with Frank Reynolds, and then like the complete opposite of a Frank Reynolds would be a John Davidson, who's basically like like I said, a support system for hair without much other talent to go around it yet ubiquitous because I guess willing to do all. Oh my God, God bless the hustle, John Davidson. Absolutely, he's great. Right, let's get into three, two, one contact. I think is that's a show I grew up on religiously. It is a substantive show for not really children per se. I think like preteens, but not so much teenagers, I guess, right? But you mentioned the Bloodhound Gang. Whenever there's trouble, we're there on the double. We're the Bloodhound Gang. If you've got the crime, we've got the time. We're the Bloodhound Gang. Love it. Tell me about it. Well, let me say a couple things about this. Uh, first of all, for people who don't know, three, two, one contact was a, you know, a science-based uh, show, you know, aimed at maybe the tween market, uh, you know, uh, or teenagers even, but you know, a little bit older of a kid watching TV after school. Um, and what they would do is there was a cast of these teenagers, and they would put them into these short little kind of uh, documentary films where, you know, the, you know, um, you know, Miguel would go visit a solar farm or something like that and learn all about it. And they would do these little educational science pieces. But actually, that's not the part that I, that I was obsessed with. What I was obsessed with, if you remember, Jason, they would, these kids would come into this space, they'd be, they'd be after school, and they come into this room, you know, where, you know, with a backpack full of their their books. And where were they? What was this place? It was this like science clubhouse with all yeah. this kind of with this nice furniture. It's their hangout. Yeah, it was a hangout place. But you know, you and I would come home to a, an empty house and wait for our mom to come home from work. These teenagers after school would go to this this hangout where there'd be some botanist sitting there waiting for them, you know, to explain, um, you know, to explain, uh, sure. photosynthesis, photosynthesis or something like yeah. that. Love and it. I, I, I could not ever get over the fantasy of having a place to go that was like <laughs> this because it was just, it, so was with such, you. it was such a, it was such an odd setting and they never explained it and never explained where these kids were supposed to be or what city they were in they were in or anything like that it was such a warm kind of comfy couch place and these teenagers would sit around and they'd rap about science the bloodhound gang specifically used science to solve crimes right so the bloodhound gang was a was a little uh six minute segment that was always at the end of the show the other pieces that they did were you know like i said they were Nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Bloodhound Gang was a detective agency that was yeah. run by teenagers. Right. Uh, again, where they would use their their knowledge of science in order to, um, uh, you know, solve a, uh, you know, solve a robbery. Yeah. Kind of Scooby Doo style. Right. Uh, you know, the the crimes were not um, were not murders. Um, usually, there was you know insurance mm -hmm. fraud or something that might be interesting uh, as as that to a twelve year old. Mm -hmm. Now. The other thing that I want to say here about the Bloodhound Gang is that the Bloodhound Gang, one of the stars was this young actor, Glenn Scarpelli. Sure. Now, I was, at the time this show was on, Glenn Scarpelli uh, was about my age. 
say, a 12-year-old, and he was this incredibly uh, photogenic, uh, you know, Italian kid from New York with his great hair. Kind of like the young Italian John Davidson, really. Right, exactly. You might say that. And uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe what was happening between me and Glenn Scarpelli. Because hormonal, I'm going to, I'm going to, it was uh, my first, it was the, it was the first time in my life that I realized that I wanted a boy as more than a friend. (laughs) I wanted, I wanted to be Glenn Scarpelli's boyfriend. Yes. Um, and he, I was talking about John Davidson being on every TV show. Glenn Scarpelli in the 1980s was also everywhere. True. In addition to being on the Bloodhound Gang in the early '80s, he was uh, he was uh, on One Day at a Time on CBS mm-hmm. uh, as the he was Alex, the kid that, for whatever circumstances, kind of becomes you know under the uh, custodianship mm-hmm. of yes. Anne Romano. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, he was on that. She was on that sitcom on CBS, and then he was on another sitcom a short live sitcom on NBC called Jennifer Slept Here. Hello. It's me. And only you can see me. I just saw the most beautiful ghost in the world. And she slept here. I just saw the most outrageous kind of a girl. Jennifer slept here, she lived here, she loved here, laughed here and wept here, she slept here, and she never really left here, Jennifer slept here. I don't even remember that. Jennifer slept here was the story about a family that moves into this house that was formerly the house owned by this um, deceased Hollywood starlet. She, for some reason, you know, haunted this old mansion that she once lived in. And the only person that could see her was the teenage boy. <laughs> this is too good. Yeah. I mean, wow. It was, it was, it was a ridiculous setup. It didn't make any sense. Um, and there was a, but then there was some kind of weird Freudian thing going on between the teenage boy and Ann Jillian's character. Um, but the teenage boy's best friend on the show was played by Glenn Scarpelli. And I, I'm telling you that Glenn Scarpelli was on two and almost three network shows at the same time. He was the Patty Page of his era. I don't know how he did this. You'll be glad. Great, great agents. I'm a little disappointed that this, this didn't work out, but I, I DM Glenn Scarpelli, <laughs> who, by the way, is gay. Oh, he is. Uh, I didn't know that. He and his husband own a TV station in Sedona, Arizona. Oh, my God. Uh, he hosts a, a um, kind of like a uh, kind of new age lifestyle type. Okay, thing. sure. Like, uh, Very you know, Sedona. Yeah, sort of natural living. I DM'd him because I wanted to confirm if I got my facts straight that in 1984 that he was on that he was on on sitcoms on two networks at the same time. Yeah. Which I think is an enormous accomplishment for, yes. you know, for a kid his age. Sure. And I also 
In addition to being on three TV shows at once, he also had a singing career. Did you get a response from Glenn Scarpelli when you slid um, into the DMs, as the kids no, say? I thought I thought maybe that it would be benign enough that he would, yeah. he would just sort of like, that he might be able to respond to me, but I never got a response back. Okay, um, well, when this comes out, Rick, we will tag him on Instagram and we'll make sure that he is aware of your fandom. Now, did you know, I don't know if you listened to our episode on The Outsiders, but Glenn Scarpelli auditioned for The Outsiders. Oh, I didn't know that. And we play a little audio of his audition tape. Oh, you played that on the, on your on the podcast? Yes. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, there's some great uh, outtake footage of the VHS recordings that Coppola made of everyone who auditioned for the movie, and everyone in Hollywood under the age of 30 auditioned for the movie. You got audio on that? Yeah, I got audio, man. Go download the episode and listen to it. I don't remember that part of the show. Well, probably I'm that best. That's probably the little, if you drop that into your DM, you probably would have got back to you. Oh, uh, okay. Wow, good soliloquy on Glenn Scarpelli. Yeah, I still love him. I, I can tell. I'm so grateful that you came on and that we did this incredible uh, Zoom recording session for the podcast. I can't wait to put this together. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to add? I want to ask you about Columbo. Now, oh my God, how, thank you so much because, as you know, the recurring segment. Columbo's Cinematic Universe. Ah, oh, one more thing. Faye Dunaway did a Columbo in 1993. Now, I tried to track it down. I couldn't find uh, this uh, 1993 episode of, uh, of a Columbo with, uh, with Faye Dunaway. What I want to ask you is, in regard to Columbo, yes. do you consider the... ABC TV movies that were made mostly in the 90s, are those They're, Columbo, are those Columbo canon? They are not canon. No. I have them. I don't watch them. They are missing something essential that makes Columbo Columbo. I could explicate exactly why that is, but it's simply an unfortunately late career retread of a successful character without any of the stuff that actually made the character great in the original uh, TV series episodes. Okay. So, so Faye Dunaway actually won an Emmy for that oh, I didn't performance. Know. And you can look at, there's some clips online. If you look at the Faye Dunaway clip, which we'll play a little of here. Lieutenant, what brings you here? Good news, case solved, you caught the killers. What? You pulled my leg. Oh, well, I missed you. No, it's been three and a half hours. I can't stand this separation. As a matter of fact, I called you at the funeral home. You just left. They told me you were here. Uh, got something for you. <laughs> you remembered the photograph. You're something. Thanks. But I don't smoke them. Okay. Listen, I'm still wrestling with this report. You gotta help me. Okay, yeah. I spoke to the manager. And he tells me that Mr. French was an obsessively neat man, true? Yes. He also tells me that the maid that cleaned yesterday is a conscientious worker. Is that accurate? Well, his department was always very clean and orderly. 
well, now here's the problem. You can feel the inertness of it. You know, you can feel the lack of something, but it's kind of hard to put your finger on exactly what it is. They are interesting as artifacts of that really specific late 80s, early 90s time because everything, and that, that may be the thing that I'm most referring to, that may be the weirdness of it all, is that it's kind of like, it's, it's, it feels like a hangover for some, some previous better TV decade. Like we haven't yet figured out how to make good TV again. So we're kind of in this time of like, sure, let's get Faye Dunaway and Peter Falk together to do a Columbo movie of the week special because what else do we have on the board? It's kind of like a Chayefsky-esque example of having nothing left to throw on the air. That's <laughs> a really so, interesting uh, comparison. It's like, it's almost like lowest common denominator. It's like, well, just, we've got, a, we've got, we've got something that we know it works because it worked uh, 15 years ago. So just put it back on TV. Did you find any other uh, Columbo cinematic universe in relation to network? I wanted so bad for there to be a Peter Finch. I know. Uh, I was hoping, yeah. I was hoping, but there's not what a Peter were you Finch. Holding? Bill Holden, um, Bill Holden is a ripe candidate for the CCU, but I think he, I don't think he had to do it. And so I don't think he did, but no such luck. Of all the cast members to have done a Columbo, I would say Faye Dunaway would have been my last choice. Like I, I couldn't believe it. Right. Oh, Rick, that's brilliant. Well, I've loved talking to you about all of these amazing pop cultural moments. We're definitely going to do this again. You're a fantastic podcast guest. I don't want you to start your own podcast because I want to monopolize you to be a guest on mine. Oh, fantastic. So don't do anything. Just stay right, right. where you are in that room and uh -huh. just wait, wait for my call. All right. I got to put in a couple of my plugs. All right. What do you got coming up? Anybody can go and uh, see uh, most of my writing if they're interested. Fiction writing at my website, which is uh, rfbrown.net. You can uh, DM me, follow me, whatever, uh, Instagram and Twitter at R.F. Brown words, words, that's with an A, not a O. Okay. People can also find a short story I have about figure skating that's coming out in the Fog Lifter Queer Literary Journal on April 20th. Got it. Well, Richard, be safe, be strong, be well. Thank you again. All right, buddy. Be good. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you later. Thanks so much for inviting me to do this. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, so fun. Thank you, Rick. <laughs>